Hey, we're going to turn our attention to the last week of our Unshakable Message series. And um, to do that, before we get rolling, if you don't mind, would you just look down at, at your hands? Maybe just do this. Look down at your hands. And on the end of, of each one, only a handful of you doing it. That's right, though. On the, uh, on the end of your hands are uh, some fingers. And on the ends of those fingers are um, fingerprints. Fingerprints. And I'm not a forensic um, person. I don't know a lot about that stuff, but I just did a little bit of research and uh, you know that for the last 150 years or so, people have been using your individual fingerprint to identify who's been present where a, a crime was committed. They did that because your fingerprint is unique. It's unique to you, and it's extremely rare to have duplicate fingerprints. I mean, extremely, extremely, extremely rare. And so it's a pretty good way to identify an individual. And today, when I get done with the passage we're looking at, we're going to be talking about not just your physical fingerprints right there on your hand. We're going to be talking about a spiritual fingerprint that you have, an individual marker on you that identifies your role in God's kingdom. And to do that, I want to take you to 2 Timothy chapter 4, a passage we've been looking at uh, beginning last week. We'll look at again today. And we're going to spend with the, uh, our time on the second half of the verses we were looking at last week. Uh, and to, to get fully ready for that, we'll, though, we'll just kind of jump right back at the beginning. And so let me catch you up with what's going on here. The Apostle Paul is about to give his life. I don't know if you know this about Paul, but he had a major, major, major influence on Christianity. After Jesus died and was resurrected, there were the 11 disciples left because Judas uh, did himself in. And so there's the 11, and they began to spread the message of Jesus in the world. And one of the early converts is a guy by the name of Saul. His life has changed so much, he changes his name to Paul, and he becomes rabid about the mission of Jesus. And so he travels all over the known Roman Empire at the time, all around the Mediterranean, three major trips, planting churches and doing ministry everywhere he goes. And he creates major chaos for some people. One city, Ephesus, is so turned upside down because of Paul and his message that literally commerce changed. Businesses that were functioning and making profit on the abuse of people, on, on magic arts, on things that we would consider godless, those businesses were being shut down because the movement of Jesus was gaining such momentum that people stopped spending their money there and instead turned it towards, catch this, women and the poor, which was unheard of. It literally changed the economic climate of that entire city. And there was a young man by the name of Timothy that was put in charge of pastoring in that city. He was young in the sense that he wasn't old like Paul. We don't know how young he was, but somewhere in between 20 and 30 years old. And Timothy comes into this city that is in the middle of cataclysmic spiritual change, and there's all kinds of messiness that he has to deal with. You can read about that messiness in Paul's letter to that church called Ephesians, the church at Ephesus. You can read about the personal experience of Timothy in dealing with that church at Ephesus right there in 1 and 2 Timothy, when Paul is writing his letters. And Paul in 2 Timothy literally is days away from giving his life for the gospel. He's going to literally put his head on a chopping block and a Roman soldier is going to wield an axe and take his head right there in Rome. And in the few days before he dies, he pens a final letter. We have it in our Bible, 2 Timothy, to Timothy about pastoring and leading in this incredible, messy place called Ephesus. And over and over and over again, in, in, in 2 Timothy, Paul uses a phrase 
It's a phrase that we focused on last week. It, it, it indicates to us the power of God's word. Here was the phrase that, that, that Paul said to Timothy over and over again. In light of everything, Timothy, I'm getting ready to leave. You're going to be in charge. It's on you. In light of everything, in light of all the storms you're dealing with, in light of everything you're about to face, here's my command, here's my instruction, here's my charge. Preach the word. He says there's coming a time, Timothy, when... When you think it's bad now, you, you look at me and you think I'm in a bad situation, but Paul's saying, I'm, gonna, I'm getting out of here. And there's coming a time when it's going to get worse. What do you do, Timothy? What do you do when you don't know what to do? What, what do you do when you face the storm? How are you going to get through the storm? Here, here it is. Preach the word. Now that word preach, you'd expect me to do it because I'm a preacher, but it simply means proclaim. Proclaim God's truth. But something about God's truth has a restorative, healing, solidifying, peace-bringing impact on the storms we face. God's word helps us anchor ourselves through the storm. So in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the passage we're going to read, Paul is literally giving his final words. This is, I don't know how much you know about your Bible, but this is that chapter, we're not going to deal with it today, but just a fleeting reference here. This is the chapter where he says to Timothy, Paul speaking of himself, I have run my race. I have finished my course. There is now laid up for me a crown of righteousness. In other words, I'm gone. So here's what you need to do. You need to grab hold of God's word. And as a leader, as a follower of Jesus, as one given influence in this city of change, you're to proclaim that word. That word is what brings the transformation. So he writes to Timothy in Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through. He says, I charge you in the presence of God in Christ, who's the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. And then he tells us three things that God's word does for us that we explored last week. He says, you can reprove, gentle correction. You can rebuke, strong correction. You can exhort, which is to encourage or to enliven. And he says, do it with complete patience. And teaching, and here's why, because the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They don't want to hear sound doctrine, sound belief. And instead of that, their ears are going to be itching. They'll have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They won't want to hear the truth. They want to hear, they want to hear sound doctrine. They don't want to hear clear teaching from God's word. Instead, they'll gravitate to places that will tell them what they want to hear. So what should Timothy do? They'll do that to suit their own passions, verse 4. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth, and they'll wander off into all kinds of untruths or myths. And we're going to spend our time right here on verse 5. So Paul says to Timothy, in light of this, I'm leaving, it's on you, the city's messy, storms are already brewing, and they're likely to get harder in some real sense. What do you do? So as for you, then he gives them four powerful statements. Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Let's take each one of those phrases. As for you. 
Verse 5 says, as for you, in light of the fact that there are going to be a group of people around you who are not going to want to have sound doctrine. They're going to run away. They're going to go because their ears are itching to wherever it is that they hear what they already believe. And they just get reinforced where they are. In other words, people aren't coming with an open and willing heart to change. In an environment like that, it's very hard for God's work to do its transformative effect in people's lives, in a culture, in a church, in a family, quickly. It's very difficult for that to happen when people would rather hear what they already believe instead of running towards sound doctrine contained in God's word. So as for you, Timothy, when that happens, as opposed to what everybody else does, this is that turn in the thought where Paul has been describing the world around him, the world around Timothy, and he's turning now to talk about what Timothy can do in light of it. This is where we get our benefit for today's message because we're talking about the storms that swirl around us. Some of you came into this room today and there is a storm of physical health problems whirling around you and you can't, by your sure, sure and, and, and soul will, turn the tide of that storm. You can't. You're, you're powerless to. And some of you are in the middle of a relational storm. And just trying a little harder, and you're not even sure you could if you wanted to, isn't going to fix it. And there's financial storms represented in our congregation. There are storms that come from painful memories of the past. And even though the events were a long time ago, the effect of that storm that happened a long time ago is still howling and blowing in your life today. What do you do when it's all swirling around you? What do you do when it seems like everybody else is losing their mind and doesn't want to run to the healthy place? It's a very, very difficult place to be. One person described it this way, and I think it's a really good, a, a really good image. And, and parents, some of you, and maybe aunts and uncles, you, you'll, 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 you'll recognize this. But you remember the mobile that um, was inside of your child's crib that you would put on the side of the crib and you wind it up and it would spin like the, you know, the mobile, I think is what you call those, right? So the whole thing would spin together and the kids would lay there and the music would play and they would look up on it and, and, and when they did, it would get their attention enough. Many times they'd fall asleep to it or whatever. Well, well, all those pieces of the mobile, they move in relationship to one another. And so they're going around constant, consistent, not a lot of change, Right? One piece moves, they all begin to move. What happens when one piece of that mobile, just, it's a metaphor, it falls apart, I understand, but what happens when one piece of that mobile decides not to play along anymore and instead decides to deal with a reality? How does that impact the rest of the mobile? No, let, me, let me just put it in our terms. What happens when one person in a broken dynamic decides to stop doing the broken dynamic and change? What happens when one person in a marriage says, I don't like where we are. I want to get healthy and right. What happens when one person says in a, in a family, we're going to make Jesus a priority in this family. And it's only one person at this point. It produces all kinds of chaos. Because up to this point, everything's used to operating in the way that it was operating. This is what happens when you're in a broken relational dynamic and you stand up and say, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. Everything around then suffers chaos. This is what Paul's describing to Timothy when he says, the world around you is not going to run after the things of God. They're not going to pursue sound doctrine. They're going to go to places that simply reinforce what they already believe. But as for you, as for you, here's how you can manage that. So he says, be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. 
Now, sober-minded simply means to be, think straight. When everybody's losing their heads, you don't have to. Be sober-minded. Think clearly about things. It involves a rationality, a certain logic as well. Be sober-minded. And that's one of the ways that you, in the middle of the mobile that's spinning and you've cried, stop, we're not doing it this way anymore. It's one of the ways that you then can actually manage the transitions around you. It's how Timothy was encouraged to manage a city that, while it was changing, had a long way to go. And Paul was telling him it might even get a little worse. Be sober-minded. Think clearly. The Bible tells us in one place that a double-minded person who doesn't have clarity of thought is unstable in all of his or her ways. So to think clearly. Let me ask you a, a, a question. Do, do you have somebody in your life, do you have a source of truth outside of yourself, because all of us are given to self-deception, that you can run to to get perspective, to help you get clarity in your thoughts? Do you have that? Are you already taking advantage of God's word that you either have on your tablet, on your phone, or in a leather-bound book somewhere, that contains wisdom about all the major categories of life. It doesn't always tell you exactly what to do, but it gives you principles that last and make major impact. You're already taking advantage of that. Do you have a friend who will literally speak the truth to you? All through our discussion about the various storms, we've been talking about the power of other people and your receptivity to that. But as Paul said to Timothy, a lot of us will run away from sound instruction, sound doctrine, sound teaching on spiritual matters, on financial matters, on relational matters. I can't tell you the number of people in our church that we've given the opportunity to go to counseling. They go once or twice, and then the counselor begins to lean on that person and say, here's some changes you need to make, and the very next session, they don't show up. Being sober-minded requires work. It's hard when everybody and everything around you feels out of control. And that's why Paul says to Timothy, you're going to have to be sober-minded. And, and, and this, my second question to you is, is, what is the quality of your thoughts these days? What, are, what is the quality of your thoughts these days? How's the internal, I'm not talking about what you actually say or do. What's, what's the script running in your mind? I mean, what, what are you thinking about these days? What has captivated your thought? Is it fear? Is it Is it lust? Is it a quest for for power, control? Is it a hurt you can't get past? What has captivated your thoughts? It requires work to be open to what people, to, to, to letting other people speak into your life. And it requires work to begin to frame your thoughts, begin to manage your thoughts, to get clarity around your thoughts and stop the natural script that's running. It's incredibly difficult, but let, let me make something clear to you. My thoughts and your thoughts even though we have them on the inside, we don't like to speak them out all the time, they're already public to the only person that already matters. And that's God. He already knows what's going on in your head. He knows what's, what you're thinking about, what's consuming your time while you can't sleep at night. He already knows. So he comes to us and he says, in the pages of my word, which has the power to repro- reprove, reprove, rebuke, and exhort, you can find strength You can find that source of truth and you can begin to think soberly, correctly, clearly about what's going on. 
This is a little harder than it might seem. And everything in us will want to go the other way. And so it requires effort. No matter what everybody else is doing, as for you, we're instructed through Timothy's example to be sober-minded. Here's the thing. In the midst of our uncertainty, God offers us a peace, a peace that replaces anxiety, fear, and insecurity. It doesn't come quickly. It rarely comes in a moment. Sometimes we get moments and they're fleeting. But over time, when we think soberly, the peace that is Jesus himself can become our peace. Let me say this. The peace can only come when we give up our illusions of control and we embrace the reality of our dependence upon God. Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, this city is bigger than you. This church is bigger than you. This life is bigger than you. He's already encouraged him. If you read Timothy's story, he's already said to him, look, you were raised without a dad, Timothy. That's already brokenness in your life. You had your mother and your grandmother, Lois and Eunice. And so what are you going to do, Timothy? Are you going to run back to them? Are you just going to go shelter yourself in the arms of your mom? Are you going to man up and face what's in front of you? But you can't do that if you think it's all on you. That peace that gives you the confidence to stand in front of that city and proclaim God's truth when they don't even really want to hear it comes because you have the peace of God. And I'm telling you that the storms you and I face, we can't control the storm. We can't make them stop. They are coming. They have come. They will come. What we can do is gravitate to the God of peace in the middle of it. And to do that, we have to start thinking rightly about ourselves and our situations. God's word is the place to go to that. There are people all over this congregation who have yet to really avail themselves of the truth contained in the Bible that they already own. And I'm not here to do anything other than encourage you, but sometimes you understand encouragement comes from gentle correction. God's word has for you the answers. And his name is Jesus. And he offers peace. And he offers perspective on this world. And he offers perspective on your life. And it will always be elusive and out of reach to you until you open the pages, turn on your phone, and begin to say, God, here's your word, teach me. Reprove me, rebuke me, exhort me. God, I come to your word today for you to help me be sober-minded about you, about the world around me. So here's one way. I'm spending a lot of time on sober-minded, but here's one way we can do this. We can do this by going to God in prayer with our deepest needs, our hopes, and our fears. Just be honest with him because he already knows. He already knows what you're thinking. He already knows what you're struggling with. He already knows what the real issue is. So we go to him in his word. We go to him in prayer. It's it's amazing how often spiritual life comes back to these two pillars. And both of them are always available to us. At least in Western Christianity they are. So let me give you a little prayer that I've been praying lately. I'm not going to tell you my stuff because God knows you don't need to. But here's a prayer. Heavenly Father. I need blank, or I think I need blank, or I'm afraid that blank. Heavenly Father, this is what I need, and I'm afraid that if you don't, this thing's going to happen. Heavenly Father, I need blank, and if you don't do that, I'm afraid blank's going to happen. 
This is a pretty good prayer to pray to begin to get sober-minded. It causes you to quantify fears, anxieties, hurts, unforgiveness, tension. Op- Let's go positive. Opportunity. God, this is, this is what I think I need to happen. You need to open the door over here. I need to get a job over here. You need to fix my wife. My kid's struggling. You need, I need a good report from the doctor. And I'm afraid if I don't get that, this is what's going to happen. When, when we as a church talk about being real, one of the things that I hope happens for you in your life is just your ability to literally go to God with exactly what you're thinking without having to put on some spiritual garb, get dressed up as if you're going to church to encounter God. God, this is what I think I need. And if I don't get it, here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid my kids aren't going to have the thing that they need. I'm afraid that this is going to go bad. I'm afraid that... And that simple ability to quantify and then literally bring it to God opens the door for peace to begin washing over your soul both in opening God's word and saying, God, reprove, rebuke, or exhort, whatever you have for me today. And then in prayer, we literally begin to stop the movement of the world around us. And while we can't control all of that, we can stop us in the middle of the world that's whirling around us. While everybody else is crazy making, as for us, as for you, Paul says to Timothy, you can begin to think sober-minded. So Paul says in Philippians to to the church at Philippi, a similar idea. Let's just tease it out for a second. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request for God. Don't be anxious about anything. I'm going to be honest with you. That's hard for me. I can't do that. I don't don't live up to that. But that's not really the thrust of of the passage. The thrust of the passage is not corrective. It's directive. So in order to not be anxious about anything... In everything, by prayer, go to God. What kinds of prayer? Prayers of thanksgiving? Present your requests? And then he says, And the peace of God which transcends all understanding. I don't understand how God's going to do this. I don't understand. The peace of God which transcends our abilities to connect the dots because it's not dependent on us. We're dependent on him. That peace will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. We begin to think soberly as we take God's truth and we come to him with our concerns. And then the peace of God begins to reign in our lives. Immediately, sometimes, maybe, hopefully, usually over time. So I'm going to ask you are, you, are you, are you, are you worried about anything at all? Is there an opportunity you hope to have happen? So it's a simple question. I'm not here to beat you up. Are you praying about it? Seriously, have you prayed about it? Have you gone to God with a certain regularity and said, God, I think I need X, and if X doesn't happen, I'm afraid that. And have you opened his word to see what he has to say about that thing? Those two pillars literally anchor our souls in the peace of Christ. It's not meant to be mysterious. It's simply not what anybody else is doing. Everybody else is running around just hearing what they want to hear, finding people to give them the advice they want. But sober-minded people, they grab hold of the peace of God offered in the pages of God's word and in prayer. Remember, uh, before we move on to the next one, here's what happens. They pray until the peace comes. How do you know when you've prayed enough? I I don't mean to make it more simple or make it sound simplistic, 
But it's not all that complicated. You pray until the peace comes. You, you just don't stop. So if the marriage isn't better yet and you're afraid it's falling apart, you don't like what you heard, you keep praying. That's what you do. That's what Christians do because we go to the God of peace and we quit acting like it's on us. And just so you know, this is, these are not the words of the guy that's got it figured out or the guy that does it perfectly. I literally am a fellow practitioner on this because nobody in this room can do anxiety better than me. No one. I got to be. It's the one place. It's my spiritual gift, anxiety. I'm good at it. I'm good. I'm learning in fresh and new ways that God's word is an anchor for my soul. That may sound silly coming from a pastor. And prayer. God's word Sometimes in the pages of his word, sometimes through a spiritual trusted friend who's ahead of me or just has clarity that I don't have. Not just running to people who hear God's word and true spiritual friends and prayer become anchors in my soul. Then Paul tells Timothy, we're going to spend a few minutes on this. He says, endure suffering. I wish to God this were not in the Bible. Endure suffering. Because here's what happens. When you and I endure suffering... God uses it to put us on our face before him. I know in our modern context, it's not proper, not cool, doesn't sound relevant to talk about getting on your face before God. But the spiritual giants in whose shadows we operate, here's what they would do. They'd literally get on their knees as a sign when they would pray to God that he was God and they weren't. And sometimes they would literally lay on the ground and just talk to God face down. Now, in a society where there were kings and servants, it made more sense. I get it. It's not the point, but that's the attitude. And suffering is meant in part, what God wants to do through it at least, how he's going to use it at least, is to put us on our face before him. This is not a bad posture. Here's the truth. You and I will not escape this world without some suffering. Timothy wasn't going to escape in pastoring some suffering. Paul wasn't going to escape the Roman Acts. So what do you do? Well, you endure it. And you let it put you on your face before God. That's not a bad place to be. Most of us would be better off five years from now if between now and then we regularly put ourselves on our face before God in humble submission. It would change our families, our career, our attitude, my anxiety. It would. And so Paul says to Timothy, when everybody else is losing their head, as for you, here's what you do. You endure suffering. Because here's the truth about suffering. It doesn't have to wreck your life. In fact, it can begin to define it. So so you want to have unshakable faith? Here it is. Faithfulness is the path to unshakable faith. You be faithful in the storm you're in, and God begins to grow unshakable faith. And there's a one-to-one correlation between the things you're going through right now and your ability and your strength to face what you're going to face tomorrow. Because tomorrow's demons likely to be stronger and harder, at least more complex. Or you're like me at 45, and I know I don't look it. Thank you. Um, You're at me like 45, and you just don't have quite the energy you used to have to face the same demons you used to face. I mean, it's, it's just the way it is. So what happens is God uses the storm today to get you ready. So he says sober-minded, endure suffering. And then he says, do the work of an evangelist. That word evangelist, by the way, you and I are already telling our friends about what fills our lives. You've got to go see this movie. 
You got to try this restaurant. You know what we are? We're just evangelists for the movie. We're evangelists for the restaurant. It impacted our life. We share that with the people that we care about, the people that we want to have similar experiences and emotions that we've had. We like them, so we give them the good stuff. Try this restaurant. Do this thing. Go to this place. We're already evangelists. Paul reminds Timothy, look, I don't care if you feel called or not. Here's, here's part of the deal. When you accept Jesus, you accepted his mission too. So just go out and do the work. Tell people about Jesus wherever you are. Do the work of an evangelist. So, he says, be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of your ministry. And now we come down to the fingerprint thing I was talking about. He says, fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. There's, there, there, there's a thing called comparison at work in this world where you look at the mom who's posting on Facebook and you think somewhere maybe they're a better mom than you. You look at the guy who drives the car and you think maybe they're more of a man, more successful, whatever. You look at the student who makes the better grades. You look at the kid who has the better girlfriend or boyfriend. You look at the family that seems to have it all together and we compare, we compare, we compare. And yet we have individual unique fingerprints because God didn't design our lives and his plan for you is not meant to have you shadow and copy somebody else's life. So Paul has to remind Timothy that there's going to be this pull to try to be somebody else and do something else. So he says to him, fulfill, and here's the operative word for me, your ministry. Not somebody else's. Don't live somebody else's life, somebody else's journey. Let it inform you, of course. We're not an island. We, we all operate together, but informing is one thing. Putting pressure and anxiety and making you feel inferior is something completely different. So, Timothy, you want to you, you operate in a crazy world and not be consumed by the craziness? God's word and prayer. Get appropriate, healthy perspective on suffering and let it drive you to your knees before God. Do the work of ministry, your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. And here's the thing. You can't outsource your call. Nobody else can do what God's called you to do. Nobody else is going to have the influence on your kids, your grandkids, your neighborhood, your spouse. Truth is, is you and I have a unique fingerprint. And with our unique fingerprints, we leave a unique imprint. That's how it works. Unique, unique imprint, which means in one sense, Greg and I were saying it earlier, we absolutely need you on this team as a church. Because I can't do what God's given you the ability to do. Absolutely, we need you if we're going to do all that God's called us to do. In the other sense, we're a big enough church, we can largely operate if you choose not to be obedient or not to follow God or not press in. We'll be fine. We'll get past it. It's okay. But you won't be. This is why you've got to, in my opinion, find a healthy local church that you can fully plug into. And if it's not here, please, you have my permission. Go find one. I'll help you find good churches all over the city. I know most all the pastors most of them are my friends. I'll help you find a good church. But you need to be involved in a church where you can give some of what God's blessed you with back. Time, energy, and money. Because you have a role, a unique role that's not mine that you can fulfill. And if you don't, it's not going to be fulfilled in that way. It's going to be a hole in the picture of what God's trying to do in this city. And here's the truth about your fingerprint and mine. The storms that you've gone through, they've helped shape your life. And God will use those to impact the world for Jesus around you. 
the very things that have molded and shaped you, the hardships that you've gone through. God will use those very things in crafting for you a unique fingerprint that will leave a unique imprint in this world. And from that position, you can fulfill what Paul hoped Timothy would fulfill. Massive impact for the kingdom of God and a certain stability in, the own, in your own life's storms. It's not meant to be secretive or some secret information or one new piece of thing or one more experience or one more person praying for you. That's not how the stability comes. That's not how we withstand the storm. That's not how we make good out of the storm. That's not how God redeems the storm. It happens through sober-minded thinking brought to us by God's word and prayer. It happens as we endure suffering. It happens as we fulfill our ministry. These are the things that God offers, not just to Timothy, a young man living 2,000 years ago, pastor over, in, over his head in an environment that was difficult for him. It happens for all of us today. These are the very tools that God's given each one of us to be able to use. So let me ask you a couple questions. How's your engagement of God's word these days? How's your prayer life? Do you have a few friends who you literally could have a spiritual conversation? And when you began that conversation, you began it with the confidence that you knew they weren't going to tell you what you wanted to hear, but they were going to point you to Jesus. What are you doing in the middle of the challenges you're facing right now? Is it putting you on your face before God? Are you doing what I do, running around like a chicken with your head cut off sometimes? Are you pressing into your ministry? That is, that you're not just here on this earth to consume, but God, in fact, is working through your life to impact others. These are the things that I think we should be contemplating if we're facing the storms. Now, we've taken this entire series, and we've dealt with some pretty serious issues. And the feedback in this congregation has been pretty dramatic. And I know that while we're going to end the series and we're going to transition next week to something different, a slightly different feel, I know that a lot of you aren't going to be able to just walk away from your storms in the same way that I can shut down a message series. So what I want to do is I want to give you an honest-to-goodness approach to dealing with it, no matter how life changes and turns for you. And I want to let you know that I'll pray with you, but I can't replace your own prayers for yourself. And I'll keep studying God's word and trying to bring a message, but I can't replace your own engagement of God's word in your life. And I'm going to serve to my dying breath in ministry in God's kingdom, no matter where life takes me. But I cannot fulfill your call to do your part in God's kingdom. And I'm just suggesting to you, without those handful of pieces in place, the storms will continue to blow you over. But you get a few of these pillars in place and those anchors run deep, you will literally be able to withstand the storms of life. So with that said, let's grab out our connect card and let's take a few steps together as a congregation. Every week I give people a chance to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior for the very first time. It would be unusual if you come into our church on any Sunday and you don't hear us talking about him. If, if, that, if that happens, 
We're, we're off track. We talk about Jesus because we think the most important decision you'll ever make in life is what are you going to do with him? Will he be the guy that gives you advice, the guy that makes you feel good, or will he become your Lord and Savior? Will you acknowledge yourself as a sinner and put your trust in his hands? So next step A for us every week gives you a chance to do that. And I'm, if, if you want to do that, I'm just asking you to take your pen right there and check next step A. When the offering bucket comes by at the end of the service, you put your card in there. We'll pray about it in a minute. You can use my words, use your own. God, I'm a sinner. Save me. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. And if you mean that, the Bible says that God redeems your life and he washes away the old and you begin new life with him. Or how about next step B? You want to get baptized? If you check the box, this is your desire. We'll communicate with you, answer your questions, get you signed up, celebrate with you what God has done. Here's next step C. The prayer I offer that I'm praying every day this week. You fill in your own blanks. I'll send it to you if you check it. Heavenly Father, I think I need, I need, fill in your blank. And if you don't, I'm afraid that, and you fill in the blank. I wonder if you'd be bold to pray that with me this week for whatever's going on in your life. Here's next step D. I'm wondering if in the last few months God's changed your life or you can sense that he's changing your life and you'd like to tell somebody about it. I'd love you to check the box and let us send you an email and then you just send us a little bit of info about that and we'll have a small email exchange going back and forth. I think your story, part of your ministry, might be that God will use your story to impact others and we just want to capture some of that. Here's the next step E we talked about earlier. I'm going to commit to serving in 4C Kids four times between now and the end of the year as we prepare for a new family ministries pastor. Let's pray about these things right now. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being the strength in the middle of our storm. Thank you for sending Jesus, the Prince of Peace, who still speaks peace to storms. He calms them. God, I want to thank you for the gift of your word. I want to thank you for prayer. I want to thank you for godly friends pointing us towards Jesus and the truth of God. And God, I want to thank you for a church where we can be real and transparent and be pressed to grow towards you. God, I join with these folks in this room right now and I lift up our family ministries. God, pour out your blessings there. Impact the life of these kids so deep. Put an anchor in their soul that no matter where life takes them and how the storms of life blow, it will not pull them fully away from you. Use us to do it. God, I pray for those that right now are saying, Jesus, save me. I'm a sinner. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. And God, I pray that you would give us a revival of excitement around your word, around prayer, and around the ministry you've called us to do. I pray these things in the name of Jesus, the strong and holy Son of God. Amen. Amen.